And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, May 22nd. And boy, do I have a treat for you this weekend. You are going to learn something, ladies and gentlemen, because we have a great guest. Her name is Dorothy Brown. She is an academic. Let me just start there, that she's super smarty pants. She is a professor at Emory University School of Law. She went to Fordham University and Georgetown Law. She got a um, a master's in uh, legal taxation from NYU. She's super smart, okay? And she wrote a book and it captivated me. It's called The Whiteness of Wealth. It essentially is an indictment of the United States tax system and how it is really not an equal system. I know you think it is, but it really isn't. And we're going to start the interview with her telling us a little bit about how she got into this topic and the example of her own family, her own parents, and how their situation kind of illuminated a glaring disparity in the tax code. So here is the first half of our interview with Dorothy Brown. So I just want to come out of the closet right now that I, like you, I am a closet nerd. <laughs> and unlike you, I am neither a, a lawyer or a, or an accountant or anything very fancy, but I, I love data. And so I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what drove you to writing The Whiteness of Wealth. Yes, that's such a great question. And what star- it started with me doing my parents' tax returns. I was working as an investment banker and I made by myself the income that both of my parents made combined. My mother was a nurse, my father was a plumber. And under our progressive tax system, I'm supposed to pay a lot more taxes than they are. And I didn't. I paid more, but I didn't pay a lot more. And I could not figure out why. And every April 15th, I went through the same battle and could not figure out why, but I had a job and I didn't have all the luxury of what I do now as an academic. So I put it in the back of my head and moved on. 
Eventually, I became a law professor and one afternoon decided to take a break from preparing for class. And I read an article that said, how do you know there isn't a race and tax problem if you don't look? And I was like, what? Race and tax? Are you kidding me? But it was written by a mentor and someone who I respected. And every time I read something he wrote, he made me think in a different way. So I picked up the phone and I said, I'm going to write about race and tax. And little did I know, the IRS does not publish statistics by race and tax, which made my my pledge very hard. Yeah, it's interesting because you had to go there. There is great data through the government uh, yes. available in the Census Bureau has great data often. And certainly states have some data, but it was shocking. And of course, when I thought it through, as you laid it out, that, you know, there's no box that you check on your tax return, which says that's right how you identify. So what kind of data were you then pushed towards to try to go on this journey of discovery of what's what the differentials are? And then we'll talk about where those differentials lie and why that is. Right. So what when I figured that out, I thought, oh boy. And I took my eyes and retrained them. So whatever I read And I I went for information or publications dealing with race. And whatever I read, I tried to use my tax brain to analyze the data to see if I could make some point. And I came across a U.S. Commission on Civil Rights study that had the following sentence or so that said, married Black wives contribute 40% to household income and married white wives contribute 29%. Now to anybody else reading that sentence, they wouldn't think anything of it. But for me, it was tax gold because I know the joint return operates differently if you have a spouse contributing 40% or more to household income than if you have a spouse contributing 20% or less. That statistic led me to unravel the mystery of my parents' tax returns. They were paying higher taxes because they were married, filing the joint return, and they contributed roughly equal amounts to household income. Okay. And so people are going to hear that and they're like, wait, I've heard of this thing called the marriage penalty. So what what's going on? Like the marriage penalty, I think used to mean um, something different than what you're talking about. So let's first also, which was amazing. And I didn't know this as someone who loves this kind of crap so much. I didn't know that everyone used to file an individual return, yes. whether you were married or not. So when did that change? It changed with the joint return in 1948, but what led up to that was the Supreme Court decision in 1930 that was started by a rich white couple, Henry and Charlotte Seaborn, who were one of the few Americans to pay taxes, and they didn't like it. So they used their wealth to get a tax cut, and and the result of that was the joint tax return. Now, let's talk a little bit about your parents' situation and how that penalty plays out, because I do think that this might be instructive for a number of different people, not just black people, not just white people, but it's really a massively weird situation that occurs. So tell us what happened with your parents, their situation, and compare it with you as the individual making the same amount. So what our progressive tax system says is as income increases, 
so should the tax rate that applies to your last dollar, which means if I make $70,000 and my parents each make $35,000, the tax rate applicable to the last dollar that the $70,000 earner makes is going to be significantly higher than the tax rate applicable to the last dollar, the $35,000 worker makes. The problem with the joint return and how the marriage penalty is created is spouse A's income is slapped on top of spouse B's. The progressive tax rate that applies to them is much higher than had they remained single. I mean, and it is kind of crazy because when you think about it, Seventy-five or eighty thousand dollars should be seventy-five or eighty thousand dollars, no matter what. That's right. So that's just the income tax part of it, which, to me, I always get nuts about the income tax code and how weird it is because there are so many parts of it that penalize certain groups more than others. And I want to yes. talk about the racial issues behind that that created it and how that has impacted the disparities and how inequality has blown out. So I hate the idea of a home mortgage interest deduction. Why is it that an owner <laughs> gets treated differently than a renter? Well, how did that develop? Well, in the beginning, all interest was deductible whether it was business, whether it was personal, whether it was consumer, that all changed in 1986 with the Tax Reform Act. And the only personal interest that was then deductible was the mortgage interest deduction. That was kept because of a very fierce real estate lobby. The same real estate lobby that was very much instrumental in preventing Black people from buying homes. Exactly right. That's exactly right, Jill. So now we have a situation where there are these red line districts where basically realtors are like, okay, you can buy a place in the South Bronx, maybe. And it sounds like your parents were able to do that, but mostly because they, your dad worked for a guy who helped him out, right? A white guy who helped him out. Yes, absolutely. They, um, his boss, gave my parents a second mortgage, which was a down payment because my parents couldn't have afforded it without it. Absolutely. Would they have been able to actually buy a place in the South Bronx because that was one of the areas where they were like, okay, it's okay if black people buy there? Or would they have been shut out because they would not have been able to get a mortgage no matter what? They wouldn't have had the money for the down payment. They would not yeah. have been able to afford it. They wouldn't, you know, no lender is going to give 100% financing. So there's no, right. there's just no way they would have been able to afford a home. And what they bought was a three family home so mm-hmm. that the rental income from the second and third floors helped pay the mortgage. And so if you just look at the idea that each side of a black couple tends to contribute more equally to the overall income. So they get penalized there. They often would get penalized because they couldn't actually buy a home. They didn't have enough money to do that. And they were not able to grab the home mortgage interest deduction or all the other property tax deduction, et cetera. Where else did you go to try to understand how come the wealth disparity persisted beyond the tax code. Homeownership is a big driver of white wealth. 
So looking at the returns to home ownership, so I looked at sociology research that showed that when you had more than 10% of your neighbors are Black, the value of the home declines. And if it's more than 20%, it declines even more. So the greater the percentage of Black neighbors in the neighborhood, the lower the value of the home. So you could see in sociology research that goes back decades, that shows the racial disparity in home ownership. And you have so many people saying, well, if we just had more Black people owning homes, we'd be able to make a dent in the racial wealth gap. I will say this, equity or net worth of Black homeowners is significantly higher than the net worth of renters. But there will always be a racial wealth gap associated with home ownership because Black Americans live in predominantly Black or racially diverse neighborhoods that don't bring the appreciation with it, whereas white homeowners live in homogeneous white neighborhoods with very few Black Americans. Okay, so now you have to tell your own story about how you basically are like, oh, wait a minute, I screwed myself by buying a house in a Black neighborhood. (laughs) Yes, so... The first home I bought was in an all-white neighborhood in Ohio, and I sold it. I made money. It was no problem. I thought that's how homeownership worked because this was before I did any research on homeownership and tax subsidies and race. So I moved to Virginia. I buy a house in a racially diverse neighborhood on purpose because the area is very white. And as I put it, I want to see black people other than when I look in the mirror, right? Mm. So I buy a home on a racially diverse street, think nothing of it. Then I move to Atlanta and I'm selling the home and I can't sell it. And I'm starting to do research for race and homeownership piece I'm writing. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't sell my home because I'm living in a racially diverse neighborhood. I can like smack my forehead. Ultimately, it sells, but it left a mark, right? The research left a mark. Now that I know, I can't unsee it. And when I moved to Atlanta, I couldn't quite figure out the real estate market. But more importantly, I didn't want a job tied to a home again. So I bought a house on Martha's Vineyard. Why? (laughs) Okay. Why? So I vacationed in Martha's Vineyard since the late 70s and love it. And in the summer, lots of black people are on the vineyard, right? So when I tell people I go to the vineyard, they go, huh? I'm like, oh, you don't understand. It's like black Mecca up there when you're walking around in the summer. So it's a white area, but there are a lot of black people. So for me, it's the best of both worlds. But yeah, I use this information to buy a house in Massachusetts and I live in Georgia. You end your chapter on the black and white housing market in your great book, The Whiteness of Wealth. And you have some tips, um, which is, of course, I don't want to harp on the buy in a white neighborhood, but you said one big tip is to have neutrality in the tax code. Now, interestingly, I feel like there is like Maybe a glimmer of hope of actually having tax reform under this current administration, but I still feel like that mortgage interest, man, it is sacrosanct. So what do you think is the possibility of just that gets scrapped eventually? Oh, I think it's huge. And here's why. The Trump tax cuts. The Mm. Trump tax cuts, which increased the standard deduction significantly minimized the percentage of taxpayers who itemize, and you have to itemize deductions in order to get the benefit of the mortgage interest deduction. It used to be one in three Americans itemized. Now it's one in 10. 
the increase of the standard deduction significantly decreased the amount of Americans that can get a tax break because of their mortgage. Whether the real estate lobby complained, it was irrelevant. They weren't able to stop the train. So Mm. given that we're now at a point where one in 10 itemize, I think we've got a much better chance now of getting rid of that and other itemized deductions. And one other thing that you pointed out, which makes so much sense to me, and I was thinking about this because I was sort of my first entree into journalism was I, I was a money manager, financial planner, and then I came over to journalism right amid the financial crisis. And um, Mm -hmm. one thing you point out, which is fascinating is that, you know, you could buy any asset in the universe. And if you lose money on it, the tax code will help you out, but not a house. Yes. And black Americans, black homeowners are more likely to sell for a loss than white homeowners. So black homeowners get disadvantaged by our tax subsidies, by our tax policies, right? Why can't we allow a loss on a sale of homes? Where did that come from? It came from the idea that a home is a personal asset as opposed to an investment asset, something held for income, right? Uh So a home is something you live in. So we don't view that as an investment. So we allow losses on investments, but we don't allow losses on personal assets. So if I sell my car at a loss, I don't get a tax break either. All right, that's it for part one with Dorothy Brown. We'll we'll air part two tomorrow, and that's when we're going to dive a bit deeper into the tax code itself. It's going to be shocking. There are so many parts of this, this book that really were illuminating to me. In the meantime, don't forget to wash your hands, wear your masks if you haven't been inoculated, especially if you're inside. Maintain that physical distancing, because I think we're going to give each other some space. Put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. 